Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk evening with the expert. This talk is being recorded, and I will be available uh, and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Uh, participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation's website, www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. And tonight's topic uh, in our evidence-based practice of sensory integration series is sensory integration and play in evidence-based practice. And hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Teresa May Benson. I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And I'm delighted to be with you this evening to discuss uh, evidence-based practice as it applies to sensory integration and play. So to begin with, <clears throat> let's talk, uh, go over a little bit what I'm going to cover in tonight's talk. Uh, as we're all aware, play is a very essential occupation of childhood. And it's an area that has been addressed within the field of occupational therapy since uh, OT's inception. Uh, unfortunately, we all know that a child's ability to play is often disrupted when that child has sensory integration and processing problems. And so what we're going to talk a little bit about tonight is um, what is play and playfulness. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the evidence uh, for the relationship between play skills and sensory integration functioning. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the play skills of children with SPD and autism and uh, a little bit about what that looks like, and then talk about some of the evidence uh, for improving and addressing play within a sensory integration framework. Now, one of the things most of you are probably aware of is, is that Play is a huge topic, an absolutely huge topic, and uh, we could spend hours on any one of these particular um, sections. But I want to give people some resources for understanding these uh, topic areas a little bit more. And I think that um, as you go along, you're going to see how important this is. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about what is play and playfulness and um, how this information kind of uh, feeds into sensory integration. So play is something that uh, psychologists have talked about for years and years and years, and as well as occupational therapists. But I think probably one of the most uh, important people who talked about play initially was Piaget. And in uh, 1951, he published a book called Play, Dreams, and Imitation in Childhood. And uh, I have found this particular text to be really uh, helpful because in this book, he talked about developmental stages of play and imitation skills and um, how those related to cognition. Now, I've also taken that information and related it to children's praxis skills. And we all know that Piaget developed the cognitive uh, levels of early childhood. And his levels of play and development and imitation skills um, both relate to the same levels of cognition. And I'm referring to Piaget's book, 
1951 book called Play, Dreams, and Imitation in Childhood. Now, um, all of the uh, references that I'm going to give you uh, tonight, as we typically do with this series, uh, we will send you a reference, uh, a link to download the reference list, okay? And uh, I will also put a uh, link for the reference list on the TalkShoe website in uh, one of the comment boxes uh, for this particular um, talk. So within the week, you'll um, get a list of all of the citations that I'm discussing today. So Piaget, important um, for his categorizations of play as well as um, imitation skills. In 1963, a gentleman by the, by the name of Frank stated that when a child cannot play, we should be as troubled as when he refuses to eat or sleep. And this, I think, spoke to the importance of play in children, that play is such an important component um, for children. Now, within the field of occupational therapy, I think the most uh, well-known person in the area of play is Mary Riley. And Mary Riley, in 1974, wrote a book called Play as Exploratory Learning. And this book is really sort of the seminal uh, book on play. And she was really the first OT to talk about play as an occupation and the importance of play to uh, occupational therapy. And she referred to play as a cobweb that is both elusive and complex. And she discussed the fact that we know play when we see it, but describing what it is and what makes something play or not is the subject of much debate among various professionals. And that particular comment is uh, absolutely true because one of the things that you are going to see as you go through the uh, play literature is that people discuss play in lots of different ways, okay? And they uh, describe it in many, many ways, and it's categorized in many ways, okay? So this can make it um, complicated when we're trying to compare the uh, research from one area to research from another person. Now, another book that I wanted um, to mention to you was a um, book by Brian Sutton Smith, and this particular book was called Play and Learning, and it was published in 1979. And what was interesting about this text is, is that um, it was a text of conference proceedings uh, of a conference that was a, a series of conferences that was sponsored by Johnson & Johnson's Baby Products, of all things. Um, people kind of give <laughs> big business a bad name sometimes, but I have to tell you, Johnson & Johnson, especially in the early days, sponsored a lot of research on child development, okay? And this particular book introduced um, a lot of key researchers and authors in the area of play. And in this text, they discuss the character of play, how it changes during development, and the effects of play on function. And this was sort of a seminal book in our understanding of play because it really articulated a lot of the key concepts that we accept as sort of given today on the nature of play, how um, children interact with objects during play, and the uh, social nature of play. So these are a few historical references, but I think it's always important for people to know where basic information came from. Okay. Now, all of these people, like I said, talked a lot about the different aspects of play. So let's talk a little bit about what is play. Well, play is um, acknowledged to involve a couple of different things. First of all, play can be with objects, and that play with objects can be functional or it can be symbolic. So functional play is when you're using an object the way it's supposed to be. So for instance, um, uh, you're drinking out of a toy cup. Um, the cup is supposed to be drunk out of. 
whereas symbolic play means that you're using an object to represent another object. And this representative or symbolic play really involves the development of representational thought, which is something that Piaget talked about in his book. So this ability to pretend is really dependent on symbolism and representation. Um, now, play can also be with others, and that play with others can involve aspects of social interactions. So we talk about parallel play, or um, interactive play, or sociodramatic play, okay? So there's really sort of two aspects to play. There's how children play with objects, and there's how children play with others. And what's interesting is that the literature on autism has shown that these two different kinds of play tend to relate to different kinds of functioning, okay? So that, for instance, um, play with uh, imitation, which would involve play with others, is related to social-emotional development, whereas play with objects is really related more to motor planning skills. And so it's quite interesting that we see um, these differences in the different types of play. Now, play involves a number of different functions. And these uh, functions have been pretty well accepted over the years. First of all, play is um, identified as being intrinsically motivated, meaning that it comes from within the, the child it's um, the ch motivation is from within. Play has an internal locus of control, meaning that it, the control of the play is the child. It doesn't come from outside individuals. It requires that the player be actively engaged in the play. So a child who's just sitting and watching is not really um, playing, okay, unless you would consider watching to be an active engagement. It's voluntary, and it's freely entered into by the participant. And I think this is a really important concept, especially as we think about children with um, autism, because if you are forcing a child to play, by definition, that child is not then playing, okay? Because play is voluntary, and it's freely entered into. So if there's coercion into the play, then it's no longer play. It's work. It's something else. Play is also guided by self-imposed rules and goals, okay? And it's focused on the means rather than the ends. So play is very much process-oriented, okay? It's not really about what you get out of it at the end product. It's about the doing. And that's so OT, isn't it? Um, that doing piece. And play is very, uh, what we consider to be organism-centered rather than object-centered, meaning it's really about what the person is doing, not what the objects are, that they're using are doing. And it's done for pure enjoyment of the process. Okay? Um, individuals in, engage in play because of the process of the play, uh, not necessarily because of the end product. And generally, there's a pretend or what we would call an as-if quality to the play. And there's a freedom from externally imposed rules, which means that there's no, there's no outside rules um, in play. So, you know, the little girl can be a king if she wants to be. She doesn't have to be a queen or a princess. She can be a king, and she can be the king of her kingdom. It doesn't matter. Or she can be an alligator if she wants to be. Um, there's, she doesn't have to follow the, the rules of everyday life. Now, when we talk about categorizing play, which impacts our understanding of the research, um, there are several different ways of categorizing play. First of these are what we call the constructs of play. Uh, and these identify the characteristics that make something play. So many of those things we just covered uh, someone may study play looking at whether or not children engage in activities that require or demonstrate 
those particular characteristics, i.e. being intrinsically motivated, freely entered into, voluntary, um, organism-centered, etc. There can be different types of play. And in this case, they're looking at the function and the nature of the play behavior. So for instance, are they doing pretend play? Are they doing um, play that is, um, <clears throat> for instance, um, playing house? It, it might be representing everyday life activities, what kinds of play? There are um, several different categorizations of developmental levels which define the stages and progression of play skills. And these developmental levels usually kind of fall along the lines of uh, play with objects. There's categorizations for those. <coughs> and then there's uh, social play or play with other categorizations. Then we have, as I mentioned, the social stages of play. And those describe ways that children play in relationship to others. And then lastly, and this I really feel is important for us to know because it's a very um, OT thing, and it's something that OTs really brought to the table in the play literature, is this idea of playfulness. And playfulness uh, being that um, approach that one takes towards an activity uh, to make it play. And we're going to talk a little bit more about playfulness uh, in a few minutes. Now, um, this idea of playfulness versus play skills, as I mentioned, is a very uh, OT contribution to the play literature. And this is a concept that was introduced by Anita Bundy in uh, 1991. And she was really uh, the first to talk about play uh, in regards to whether something is play or not play. Okay, and she really <clears throat> followed Ayers', Ayers um, model originally of thinking about uh, play and uh, wrote a chapter in the original sensory integration theory and practice book in 1991. And what she identified was that playfulness, okay, involves different dimensions of internal control, freedom to suspend reality, and intrinsic motivation. In addition to that, she talked about the framing of play, of a play scene. Uh, in other words, what are the cues that the player gives to others to let them know that they're engaged in play, or the type of play that they're engaged in? And what Bundy said was that playfulness involved different levels of these different categories. So you could have a very high uh, amount of internal control, but maybe lower levels of freedom to suspend reality and sort of only moderate intrinsic motivation and still be able to play. Okay. Um, on the other hand, if you had low levels of all of these things, the child would not be demonstrating playfulness. So she really didn't talk about, yes, you're playful, or no, you're not playful. It's a matter of how playful are you. Okay. Now, that brings us then to play as an occupation. And one of the things that the literature demonstrates to us is, is that OTs in particular um, look at play in two ways. First of all, we look at play as an occupation and uh, in and of itself, okay? And we can treat play as an occupation and we can use play to improve other functions. So we can use play as a modality for intervention. And within, for instance, the area of sensory integration, um, play sort of um, falls in both of those areas. In SI, we really look at promoting play in and of itself, but we also use play um, as a way of promoting sensory integration and practice skills and postural control, etc. Now, there are a few key references um, which set up our understanding of this area. The first of these is a book uh, by the name of Play, a Skill for Life. And this was published in 1986 
And this uh, was a small book that uh, came from AOTA's Developmental Disabilities Special Interest section. And this book was really the first book that I've located within the field of OT uh, that focused on play. And it focused primarily on children with disabilities, okay? Um, cerebral palsy, developmental disabilities, etc. Now, the thing that was good about this particular text is, is that it provided information on aspects of play uh, that have informed our understanding of play since then. And this included things uh, in, like toy selection, environments for play, positioning for play, uh, these kinds of things. Now, um, the next book that came out was in 1997, and this was by Barbara Chandler, and it was called The Essence of Play, A Child's Occupation. And as you can see, um, this book started really looking at, at play as an occupation. And uh, one of the seminal chapters in this particular book was by Susan Knox and Zoe Malo, where they discussed play and treatment and treatment through play. And so they were really the first ones that I was able to identify that separated out this idea of treating play or using play as a treatment modality, okay? And as we go through today, you're going to see that that concept is quite important in the literature. The next text, which has been very popular, was um, produced by uh, Parham and Fazio. The original text was published in 1997, and the text's name is Play in Occupational Therapy for Children. Now, a second edition came out in 2007 or 2008. I've seen conflicting dates on that. But this particular text uh, presented key chapters on assessment of play, play as a means of enhancing development, and play as a specific goal for intervention. So based on the work that was done by Chandler, Parham and Fazio at about the same time we're really discussing this idea that we can address play or study play as an occupational goal um, in and of itself, or we can study it as a treatment intervention. Now, more recently, there are a couple of important um, references that you're going to want to know about. I think uh, one of the best books on play that's out there today is by Kahanic, Spitzer, and Miller came out in 2010, and this is Activity Analysis, Creativity, and Playfulness in Pediatric Occupational Therapy, uh, Making Play Just Right. And in this textbook, um, Heather and Susie Spitzer and Elise Miller, Elisa Miller, um, really talk about what is play, what are the constructs of play, um, how do we assess it? And they talk specifically about how to do activity analysis to promote play, all right? Um, play particularly as an occupation. What can you do to help promote play in children? Um, it's a really excellent textbook, um, and it's, it's just a little, little textbook, but um, it has a lot of really great information. Now, um, another reference that uh, we're going to want to know about is Miller and Kohanic in 2008 um, wrote an article called Children's Perceptions of Play Experiences and Play Preferences, a Qualitative Study. And um, one of the things I want to mention is, is that Heather Kohanic has done quite a bit of work on um, play in children. Um, she did uh, some of her doctoral work in this area and had been looking at play uh, for some time prior to that. So she's, she's uh, generated quite a bit of information in recent years to uh, help our understanding of play. Now, this particular article on children's perceptions of play experiences, I think, is important for us to understand what children think of as play. Because if we think about intervention, 
uh, for play, or even if we're going to use play as intervention, we need to know what children think about it. And what they found was that children's main consideration for whether something was considered play or not was whether or not it was fun. Okay, it's this idea of fun. Now, what was considered fun? <laughs> That's the next question. Well, they found that children chose specific play activities and determined that it was fun based on a couple of different characteristics. The first of these was how difficult the task was. So they wanted something that was a little bit challenging, but wasn't too hard and wasn't too easy. Something that was too easy was boring, and something that was too hard, they just didn't want to engage in. So they wanted that just right challenge, okay, of difficulty. Secondly, they based um, their decision on whether something was fun or not on how active the activity was. And in general, the more active it was, the more fun it was. And uh, these were typical children, so you can see that that uh, kind of goes along with what we know about most children. Now, the other thing that they talked about in terms of fun was the relational aspects of play in terms of who they were going to play with and who decided what to play. And so their peers were considered to be a primary motivator. So if they were able to play with peers that they uh, liked and wanted to play with, then something was fun. If they had to play with peers that they were not as interested in, it was not considered as fun. And decisions on who got to decide what to play also made a difference. And then lastly, one of the things that the Miller and Kohanek um, identified was that the children's characteristics of their own ability to participate in and have a level of success in activity influenced the children's play choices and influenced the likelihood of them considering it to be fun, okay? So for instance, um, if they were activities that the child could be successful in and could participate in successfully, then it was more likely to be considered a fun activity. And it gets back to this idea that when activities are considered to be too hard, then they're not fun and they need to be that just right challenge. Um, in general, they've said, uh, found that the context or the environment influenced their decisions. They more often identified the outdoors as being more fun, and uh, the reasons that they gave is because they could run around and yell and scream. <laughs> and so I think that sounds pretty typically uh, kid-like. Kid in addition to that, they tended to like big open spaces again, because they could run around and be very active. So although clearly not all children are outdoorsy, active kinds of kids, um, kind of on, uh, in general, these were characteristics that um, guided whether or not children considered something to be uh, play, whether they considered it to be fun, Okay, and I think from a treatment perspective, it informs us um, and is important for supporting our constructs of sensory integration of that just right challenge, all right, uh, and active engagement uh, in the activity. Now, how does play and sensory integration specifically relate to each other? Well, we all know Dr. Jean Ayers <clears throat> developed sensory integration, and from the very beginning, she discussed the vital relationship of play and SI in sensory integration. Uh, in the book, Sensory Integration in the Child, in 1981, she stated, when the child experiences challenges to which he can respond effectively, he has fun. To some extent, fun is the child's word for sensory integration. And so she goes back to this idea of Play is fun, okay? And play organizes the child. And <clears throat> much of our determination, our assessment of whether or not children have 
sensory integration problems is noted through whether or not their play is disrupted. Okay, um, think about it. A lot of our assessment is whether or not children can engage in motor activities of play, whether they manipulate objects in play, and secondly, play within sensory integration is the primary method of promoting sensory integration. Um, if someone's looking at a treatment session and it is not playful, then it is highly unlikely that that therapist is actually doing sensory integration intervention. So play is really embedded from the very beginning into our sensory integration uh, frame of reference. Now, another... Um, resource that talked about play and sensory integration is a two-part article by Lindquist, Mack, and Parham in 1982. And uh, these therapists wrote a two-part series on the synthesis of occupational behavior and sensory integration concepts in theory and practice. And so they, they really looked at um, pulling together various aspects of occupational behavior. And one of the things that they uh, specifically talked about was play. And they particularly talked about how important sensory integration abilities were in the child's development of play. And they said that the ch uh, adequate sensory integration abilities influenced how the child plays um, at levels of sensory motor functioning and affected things like the body's ability to effectively engage in play. Then they identified what they called the constructive level of sensory integration, where praxis and eye-hand coordination and visual perception influenced the quality of object interactions. So how children are able to engage in uh, with objects and their environment depended on these concepts of praxis and eye-hand coordination and perception. And then at the social level, the child's um, self-esteem and self-confidence, which as we know grows out of effective sensory integration, influences the child's willingness and ability to interact with and cooperate with and compete with peers. So that really plays a big role in those social aspects. So from this very early times, there was very specific tie-in between sensory integration and play skills. Now, um, I mentioned before Anita Bundy uh, and playfulness. Now, the other thing that Anita um, did was to look at conducting some of the earliest research on play in children with sensory integration issues. And from 1987 to 1989, she did a series of studies with Clifford um, on uh, sensory integration, functioning, and play. And she looked at um, boys with sensory integration problems and found that they had lower play scores than typical children. And they found in this group of children a correlation between play scores and gross motor abilities. So the um, poorer their gross motor skills, the more challenging their play scores were. In addition to that, they found um, in another study that children varied their play preferences to meet their play skill abilities. And this makes so much sense, right? That children select play activities that they can be good at. All right, they choose play, they prefer play skills that they can be competent in and that they have the skills to do. And so the um, because the skills were often different between children with SI issues and typical children, the types of activities that they chose could be somewhat different. Now, um, I mentioned before that uh, Kahanek, um, Heather Kahanek, has conducted a number of different studies. And those studies... Um, have looked at play in relationship to sensory integration. So one of these, which was recently published, um, was conducted by Kohanic, Tanta, Coombs, and Pannoni. That's P-A-N-N-O-N-E. 
And uh, this was published in 2013. And it was a survey of pediatric occupational therapists' use of play. And it was found in the Journal of Occupational Therapy Schools in, in Early Intervention. And this was a very interesting and somewhat disconcerting study. Um, uh, Kahanek and all duplicated a survey on play that had been conducted in, I want to say 1989, maybe the early 1990s, okay? But it had been conducted some time ago. And what they found is they asked therapists um, how they used play, um, what kind of um, intervention they used, um, and what kinds of goals and objectives, et cetera, they wrote. And what they found was that about 38% of therapists evaluated play in their clients. Now, what was a little uh, sad for me was that out of that 38%, the most frequently used assessments for play were considered to be the Battelle and the Vineland, which, as you know, are not classic play assessments. They have some play skills on them, but they don't specifically evaluate play per se. Um, only a few therapists used the Knox Preschool Play Scale or the Test of Playfulness. So very, very few therapists um, are routinely using um, play assessments as a routine part of their clinical practice. Then she asked about goals. And she found that 20% of therapists had no play goals whatsoever with their pediatric clients. And 19%, um, uh, only 19% included play goals more than half of the time. All right, so less than 20% of therapists included goals about play more than half of the time. All right. The rest of the therapists included play goals for their clients sometimes. Maybe one goal per person, uh, I mean one goal out of their client caseload, um, or a small number. But the bottom line is, as therapists, we're not writing goals specifically about play, even though this is a really important part of um, the play of, of occupation in children. Now, she, they found that the primary frame of reference that was used was sensory integration, um, followed by the developmental frame of reference, NDT, and then to a much lower extent, MOHO. Now, another thing that they found, and this is um, what I think most of us probably do, is they found that 88% used play as a modality to improve performance in other skills. And only 4% of therapists used play to improve play. <laughs> okay? Only 4% of, of the therapists were specifically addressing play as an occupation. The rest of the time, play was actually being used as a modality to improve another area. And this was what was very sad to me was 64% reported that between 1% and 20% of their treatment time was used using play as a reward. So that's a little sad when 20% of your treatment time is using play as a reward. That's not even using it as a modality to improve something else. Okay? So I think the way that therapists are using play is a concern um, today. We'd like to really see therapists addressing play. Now, when they asked about goals, they did, um, some people wrote in in qualitative uh, information that they felt that they couldn't write play goals in academic settings. And uh, this was another thing which was a little sad, was that they said that play was the domain, and I put that in parentheses, um, was the domain of the special education teacher or social workers, and that they, they, they couldn't write goals about play. And so I think this is something that we need to look at in terms of 
OTs, you know, taking play on as our rightful um, domain of practice. And what she had actually found was that assessment of play had decreased since 1998. That's when the original study was done. Now, she also found in um, her literature review that play impacts self-regulation and learning. It improves the development of divergent and convergent thinking. Play improves associative fluency and the ability to suggest alternative uses for objects, which we would consider to be ideation. It improves creativity and metacognition, and it improves flexibility in children's approaches to problem solving. So even though play in and of itself improves all of these academically oriented um, abilities, Therapists are still not feeling like, especially if you're in the school system, that they can really write play goals. And I think this is something we need to start doing more education with uh, the education system about. Now, moving on to another article, uh, Miller and Kahanek in 2006 uh, wrote an article for the Sensory Integration Special Interest Quarterly. And it was called The Relationship Among Sensory Preferences, Play Preferences, Motivation, and Mastery in Guiding Children's Play. And basically, what they talked about in this article, it was, a, as I said, a, a review of the literature. Um, they talked about different aspects of play theory and how these areas related to sensory integration functioning. So for instance, one of the things that they talked about was that um, one of the original individuals who discussed play was a gentleman by the name of Berlin. And he um, articulated a very commonly accepted play theory. And he talked about uh, intrinsic motivation of play. And he said that um, play and intrinsic motivation were related and that these things um, were related to modulation of arousal, and that especially as that was regarding novelty of activity. And so Berlin was saying that children seek out novel activity as a way of increasing arousal, okay, and that that heightened arousal allows better sensory perception and better exploration of the activity. So these two things go hand in hand, that the novelty of the activity um, heightens arousal, but the heightened arousal allows us better engagement in the activity itself, which then allows better exploration of novelty, and so on and so forth. And what Miller and Kohanek were saying was that this concept of intrinsic motivation uh, for play was really essentially the same thing that we talk about in terms of inner drive for sensory integration. Now, they also talked about mastery through play, okay, that innate drive of children to master tasks. And this was um, supported by uh, quite a bit of the work uh, by Chiksamahaya, and don't even try to spell that one. Um, <laughs> he's the guy who wrote about the concept of flow and the just right challenge. And even though Chiksamahaya's work was largely done with adults, this concept that when someone is engaged in the just right activity, um, that they are intrinsically motivated, have an inner drive to engage in, it's organizing um, for the system. And there's a desire for mastery. And so this is something that we also use in um, sensory integration. Now, another individual that they talked about was Wentworth and Wittriel, and that's W-I-T-R-Y-O-L in 2003. And these researchers found that children seek novelty when it's related to exploration of the environment and toys. And they found that children's preferences for novelty 
is related to scholastic achievement. All right, the more novelty they wanted, the more scholastic achievement. So that's an interesting thing. Um, they also um, have found that age and gender uh, influence play preferences. That's no big surprise to us. And Spitzer in 2003 looked at the meaning of play for children with ASD. And she found that many of the desired occupations in children with ASD were play occupations, even though those play occupations didn't always look exactly like those of typical children. The um, activities and occupations that these children with ASD wanted to engage in really could be considered to be play. And I think that finding was quite important because many people don't feel like children with ASD play, but they do. They just play differently than typical kids. And <clears throat> then uh, Erna Blanc in 2001 found that adults selected leisure activities um, based on the sensory properties of the activities in order to alter their feelings and state. So they engaged in activities to, um, to help regulate their, their um, feelings and their, their arousal state based on the sensory properties of activities. So all of these things show this relationship between sensory processing and um, aspects of sensory integration. Now, one other study that uh, Kohanek uh, and Brittner completed in 2013 found that sensory processing skills predicted children's praxis skills and play skills in combination. All right, so that praxis and play kind of went hand in hand, all right, and that those children's sensory functions were related to social play. But that praxis influenced that play as well. So that was a really important study for supporting the role of praxis and sensory processing in children's play skills. Now, another study that you're going to want to know about is um, a systematic review by Watts, Staganetti, and Brown. Okay, and uh, this was conducted in 2014, and it's called the relationship between play and sensory processing. And um, what they found was that four studies found that children with sensory integration problems had delayed play skills compared to peers, and that's not a big surprise. Um, that play preferences were influenced by the children's sensory preferences. I think we've seen that as a theme. Now, what was interesting in that particular study that they cited was that parents offered children play choices geared to the children's play and sensory preferences. So it sort of became this circular process that parents only offered things that were congruent with the child's sensory processing, and then the children only selected things that matched their sensory processing, because those were often only the things that they were presented with. Um, Studies found that sensory integration improved children's tactile-based activities and imaginative play and improved social interactions and attention span. So SI intervention was found to improve these areas. Um, they also found, uh, this was an interesting study. One study looked at what they called child-centered therapy, and then they conducted what they called structured sensory integration therapy which I'm like, okay, that can't possibly be AIRS SI if it's structured. Um, so I'd have to look at what specifically they did for the intervention. Um, I'd have to go back to that original study in there. But basically they found that when therapy is child-centered, it tends to improve the organization of play and development of play skills. But when it's more structured, it improves um, specific gross motor skills and other functional skills and sensory processing. So I think that this idea that if we want to target something in treatment, yes, we're going to do something that's a little more structured. But if we really want to work on play skills and organization of play and sort of those broader social skills and self-esteem and those other 
broader aspects of functioning, we need to really be child-directed. All right. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of what sensory integration functioning um, looks like in uh, children with SI issues. Now, um, we could do a whole talk on play in children with autism um, and just and looking at play kind of across the board. There are a few um, studies that I wanted to bring to your attention uh, that have seemed most relevant to our discussion today. The first of these was a study that was uh, conducted by Ozanoff, Makari, Young, and a whole bunch of other people, including Sally Rogers, in 2008. And it's called Atypical Object Exploration at 12 Months of Age is Associated with Autism in a Prospective Sample. And I think the title of that article speaks for itself. They found that at 12 months of age, when children had atypical um, exploratory object play, it tended to be associated with autism down the line. Now, I think we have to always keep in mind, in and of itself, a, a problem like that doesn't always mean autism. But it's a marker okay, that children with autism have problems with that object exploration. And I would love to see what that looks like in children with sensory integration problems. I feel like this early object exploration is so important for children with SI in terms of developing ideational skills. And um, I think that a lot of our kids with SI issues um, without autism miss the boat in that area because of the poor sensory processing and poor praxis. Now, another study which was quite interesting was done by uh, Lee Chan, Lin, Chen, Huang, and Chen <laughs> uh, in 2016. And what they found, uh, the name of their study was Correlation Patterns Between Pretend Play and Playfulness in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Developmental Delay, and Typical Development. And what they found was that um, in children with ASD, their play patterns indicated a greater reliance on others to generate new ways of how to play. Okay, so novel ways of playing, they really um, depended on other people for that. Um, they also found that the number of imitated actions in the amount of elaborate pretend play were positively associated with the ability to suspend reality and um, framing dimensions of playfulness, okay? So how well they were able to imitate things and elaborate, do very elaborate pretend play uh, were associated with greater playfulness. Now, in de the developmental delay group, they found that play performance was more closely related to the internal locus of control aspect of playfulness, whereas in the typically developing children, um, playfulness was uh, involved more symbolic play and internal control. So there were some real differences in playfulness amongst these different populations. Now, another new study that's come out was by Stephanie Bodison in 2015. Um, this was an article in AJOT, and um, she found that children with ASD had decreased imitative praxis skills, poor generation of ideas, and decreased participation in age-appropriate play and leisure skills. And uh, I don't think any of those things are surprises to us, but what was really nice was to see uh, this documentation of decreased ideation and decreased praxis skills. And she found that the praxis skills correlated with children's play skills. So again, we're really seeing from an SI perspective that sensory processing and praxis relates to children's play skills. Now, um, Skeins and Roger and Bundy um, conducted a study where they looked at playfulness in children with autistic disorder and typically developing peers. 
and they found that children with ASD were less playful than typical peers. Again, that's not a big surprise. And another thing I wanted to just uh, bring up was uh, how play skills impact adolescents and teens. And there's not, um, I would say up until recently, there's not been a lot done in this area but it's sort of become more popular in the last few years. So um, authors by the name of Shattuck, Orsmond, Wagner, and Cooper uh, in 2011 conducted a study on video modeling in children, adolescents, and they found that adolescents with ASD were significantly more likely to never see friends outside of school, uh, never be called by friends, or be invited to social activities than those with others' disabilities. So in general, they were significantly less likely to see friends, be called by friends, or to be invited to social activities than other, even other children with disabilities. So the um, interactive aspects, um, leisure aspects uh, for teens on the autism spectrum are quite um, impaired, uh, and, and this gets back to much of their difficulties with play. Now, last thing, what kind of evidence do we have for intervention? There is a lot of evidence for specific kinds of play interventions, all right? Now, related to sensory integration, what do we find? There have actually been very few studies which have specifically looked at the um, effect or effectiveness of sensory integration on play skills, all right? Um, myself and um, Jane Kumar in 2010, we conducted a systematic review on uh, the efficacy of sensory integration intervention, and we found that one of the outcomes was positive outcomes in participation in active play as well as uh, achievement of individualized goals, which often included aspects of play, and improvement in gross motor skills. So in general, most of the research that's out there is really showing improvements in the motor skills related to play. Now, Schaaf uh, et al. in her um, 2015 randomized controlled trial in children with autism found that activities of daily living were the most common areas of occupation that improved, but uh, these were followed by social participation and play improvements. Um, Vargas and Camilli in 1999 did a meta-analysis of SI effectiveness studies and um, did not specify uh, changes in play skills, but talked about um, larger effect size being found in motor categories. So again, some of those foundations. And then uh, one of the most recent um, studies to look at some of this area was uh, a study conducted in 2015 by Tanner, Hand, O'Toole, and Lane. And this study was called The Effectiveness of Interventions to Improve Social Participation, Play, Leisure, and restrictive and repetitive behaviors in people with autism spectrum disorder, a systematic review. And um, I'm only going to report on those studies that looked at play. They found one level one study that looked at, uh, that found that adult modeling and prompting, no big surprise, right, improved pretend play. Uh, one level one study found that a social pragmatic intervention improved communication and symbolic behaviors. Um, a level three study um, found that DIR floor time improved social interaction, language, and social um, disconnection. And then they looked at what they called leisure participation studies, and they found that um, one level one study of recess interventions, this was a systematic review, supported um, environmental and social support strategies 
for improving social initiation, turn-taking, and group play on the playground um, in children with ASD. And then uh, the last couple studies found improvements in uh, participation in leisure skills in young adults with ASD by engaging in an outpatient leisure group. And using social stories was found to improve performance of uh, gameplay. So very few studies looking at sensory integration specifically and how that impacts on play, but finding that a number of the aspects of SI intervention that we do use um, improve different aspects of sensory integration, or sorry, different aspects of play. So bottom line, we see a lot of these connections between sensory integration and play, okay? And at this point, our time is up now, and we'd like to thank you all for joining us. Um, watch our website and mailing list for more details. Thank you to our participants for joining us for our live talk, Sensory Integration and Evidence-Based Practice Series. Watch our website, www.thespiralfoundation.org, for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And have a great evening. Um, if anyone has questions, I am more than happy to answer questions. Um, Illinois, you're on the phone. I'm going to uh, unmute you in just a moment. And then uh, if you have questions, you can go ahead and speak. Okay, Illinois, you're, you're open on the phone if you have any questions. And anyone else who's online, please feel free to um, type in uh, any uh, questions that you might have. Thanks. We'll get you all these specific reference lists um, as well, as I mentioned. Any other questions from people? What assessment? What assessment for what? Oh, what assessment do I prefer? Um, there are an amazing number of play assessments. It's actually kind of um, interesting uh, to see. Uh, the test of playfulness is probably the best researched assessment for playfulness that's out there. Um, however, uh, there are a number of different um, place uh, assessments for different aspects of play skills, okay? And I just had a list of those. You know, the Knox play scale is probably uh, the oldest one that's around um, and is used a lot, but it's kind of challenging and they really encourage you to uh, watch kids in a variety of different settings. So that can be a little bit difficult. Um, you know, Takata's play history can be um, a quick and easy way of uh, getting information. Um, boy, there are so many different ones. Um, there's the CHIPA, the Child Initiated Pretend Play Assessment. That's a norm-referenced um, study. I mean, um, uh, measure, there's the play observation scale by Rubin, and uh, that looks at components of play based on Piaget's model, so that can be a good one. The developmental play assessment by Lifter uh, looks at play from uh, a curriculum-based perspective. So those are a few that I think um, can be really helpful. Uh, it, a lot depends on what aspects of play you want to be uh, looking at. The DIRFES, I'm not familiar with that one, and that one has actually not shown up in my research. It must be a, one that's more specific to just DIR. Um, and I, I can imagine that that would be quite a useful, um, yeah, I can imagine that would be quite a useful tool. I mean, certainly any of Greenspan's work is terrific. So my guess is it's probably more geared towards the social aspects of play rather than the object manipulation aspects. Uh, 
That would be a guess. So any other questions, folks? Comments? Anything else? Emotional developmental levels, including individual differences. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that that would be what uh, the DIR model would look at. All right. Well, have a great evening, everybody, and I hope you found the talk helpful. Have a great, uh, great night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.